0: It is Tuesday, February 6th.
1: Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt.
0: And I'm Cherry Greg. Avi, we have a big show today. I
1: really drew out the intro, too. Because yeah. it is a big show. we got it is a lot going on. Show.
0: We're going up to the stars Ooh. first. You know? Take me there, Cherry. Yeah, the end of this segment. NASA has discovered a planet that it's calling a super-Earth. Sounds super. Yeah, it's really cool. We'll talk about why they call it a super-Earth. What are all the possibilities are for this with Swasmore Astronomy Professor Eric Jensen? He's our astronomer with a capital A. We love Eric. Mm-hmm. Very nice to have him back on the show. Do you? Are you into virtual reality? I've never
1: put on a virtual reality headset, and that question might seem like a non sequitur if you didn't know mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about these headsets in our middle segment. today, yes. Cherry. Yes. Uh, Apple just introduced something called the Vision Pro. It's very expensive. Apparently, it's mm-hmm. pretty darn cool in a lot of ways. But does it meet the hype? And will it convince us to wear goggles everywhere?
0: Yeah, I don't know.
1: I, I'm going to need a lot of convincing. And will
0: it mess up my hair, man? It got will mess, I, I think, have questions.
1: I think that I can answer. It will mess up your hair. <laughs> uh, Nilay Patel is mm. the editor in chief of Verge is going to tell us all about this Vision Pro and what Apple's vision is for this whole market.
0: Yeah. And then our third segment today, we're talking to the Roxander brothers, Jake and Ashton Roxander. They're big in ballet, both here in Philadelphia and beyond. They're rising stars, Philly Ties. Looking forward to that conversation. We were calling
1: them, and I don't know if they like this or not, mm-hmm. the Kelsey brothers of A the ballet. ballet. I know. Do it's- you think they liked that? I think they tolerate a
0: twinkle it. in in the eye. I'm gonna say <laughs> I'm gonna lean yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: You have questions about Division Pro, you have questions about Super Earth, you have comments, you know mm-hmm. what to do. Studio two at WHYY.org. That's our email address. Our number is 888-477-9499. Cherry, first, let's get into some get headlines. Into it, yeah. And in about twenty two minutes, mm-hmm. to be exact. Governor Josh Shapiro is set to deliver his uh, budget proposal address. This happens at the start of every budget season out in Harrisburg. And there could be some surprises, but we do kind of know what's Mm -hmm. coming because Mm -hmm. most of it's been leaked or sort of already talked about Mm -hmm. from the governor's office. We expect there to be a lot of focus on higher education and reorganizing state high ed in the state. Mm-hmm. We expect a lot of talk about funding K-12 public education yeah, in the state. Yeah. And we expect there to be some talk about funding SEPTA and other regional transit mm-hmm. authorities. We'll see what else.
0: We'll see what else. Also, it seems like to me, we just got finished talking about last year's budget. Doesn't it feel like that? it because was, just it was a few so like, it was, drawn out. Yeah, it was so drawn out. And there was out. a
1: big fight about education funding, yeah. and that's what led mm-hmm. to the drawn out conflict. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of right back where we were.
0: Yeah, and I also think one of the things I'm going to be paying attention to is how we fill the gap of the $1 billion in pandemic-era funding that we're going to lose now. Yep. Um, so there's probably going to be more debates and more fights about how we close that gap. And, how do you close it? Yeah
1: there's there's rainy day funds there's always the mm-hmm. prospect of taxes although no one ever seems to want to tackle no, that no one
0: likes to talk about um that.
1: but yeah there's so that's going to be top of mind as well and you know it's also an address so a chance for some oratory and maybe something mm-hmm. inspirational you never yeah. know
0: you never know so moving on to philadelphia bring it back to Philly. big news here oh gosh like, this that story made me say huh? In the world, Philadelphia <laughs> Sheriff like Rochelle Bilal's campaign came under fire this week for posting quote positive headlines on the campaign website. The stories have since been removed. So why did this make headlines? Well, the stories it's were a made about up. headlines. The stories were made up. obviously. Wait, what? Yes, those headlines, those positive new headlines, were made up. Apparently, they were generated by Chat GPT. Oh my gosh. By a consultant to the campaign. They were put on a a webpage titled Record of Accomplishments on the the Bilal campaign website. The campaign removed Mm. more than 30 stories, including from The Inquirer, WHYY. We're part of the story. NBC 10, KYW. Apparently, these were all created using an AI chatbot. Uh, They were only removed, though. Uh, the after the philadelphia inquirer began asking questions about that story because those stories because they realized wait these are not in our archives and we did the same thing of course stories that were cited were not in our archives as well yeah, there were
1: headlines for stories that didn't exist that didn't
0: exist all positive all positive Of course um so yeah mike nellis founder of the ai campaign tool quiller called the campaign consultants use of ai completely irresponsible called it unethical he said it's straight up lying i should note that at some point that website had a disclaimer um that said quote it made no re- representations or warranties of any kind about the accuracy of the information on the website That's quite so, a disclaimer yeah and i don't know when that popped up but apparently it was on that web web page at some point i know you have comments i know you have thoughts
1: uh i don't know whether to to laugh or to sigh or to cry mm-hmm There's a lot here. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's kind of two avenues to talk about this. One is the way it reflects on the sheriff's office. And we should be very clear. The sheriff is not the person who runs the police department in the city of Philadelphia. Mm -mm. That person's appointed. This is Mm -hmm. an elected position. And basically they run sheriff sales and they sort of do security around courts and transportation of Mm -hmm. defendants. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's sort of a small office. But (laughs) this particular sheriff has been under fire For a long time, for a long list of issues, um, including lawsuits. The second in command was fined by the ethics board. Philly Mag says that the FBI is sniffing around. So there's a lot of issues. They don't need this. They don't need this. They don't need this. And amidst all of that, you know, all these other problems, this person was just reelected. Mm-hmm. so it certainly makes you question whether this should be an elected position in the city of philadelphia yeah, you
0: have a problem yeah yeah yeah
1: so that's one thing then mm-hmm. there's the implications about ai and chat gpt mm-hmm. and what seems to have happened here if indeed the office is telling the truth which they do seem to have a light grasp on the truth but if they're telling the truth in this case what seems to have happened is that they let a chatbot sort of just generate headlines and what chatbots can do yeah they can hallucinate they can sort of come up with plausible headlines that weren't mm-hmm. real headlines and we've been talking about the integration of mm-hmm. AI and chat GPT into workflow and how it can go horribly wrong and mm-hmm. this seems to be a
0: case yeah it to me it poses a lot of issues with possibility of misinformation voter education because if you're a voter and you want to cast your ballot for one of these offices you go onto the website you say oh look at all these positive stories you think this is true somebody needs to vet this stuff they can't just let this be out in the universe, this The way. waters are so muddy
1: right now. Yeah. Imagine the ca- the campaign website of someone holding public office has a list of headlines, and you have to question whether those headlines, which do look like real headlines, mm-hmm. are even real. Then, of course, headlines. we get
0: blamed, the media. Well, we'll always, we get blamed for a lot of stuff. I don't want to so, play victim yeah. here, but it is frustrating. It is. And WHYY
1: is implicated in all this. Let's mm-hmm. do something more positive now, Chair. Yes. And I'm going to say it like this. Mm. Mm. Voy. <laughs> Agui was boy. <laughs>
0: Ooh, boy! Aguilas, boy! I love it. According
1: to ChatGPT, <laughs> that's how you say "fly <laughs> eagles fly" in Portuguese. It was announced yesterday. I did use ChatGPT mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to do that disclaimer. Um, according to the NFL, yesterday, uh, the Eagles will open their next season with a game in Brazil on Friday, September 6th. This will be the first ever NFL game played in South America. It will be in Sao Paulo, Ooh. Brazil. So there will be an eagle game we don't know the opponent yet by the way in brazil which is pretty cool
0: first yeah. ever game in south america my only response to this is two words road trip <laughs> you want to <laughs> go we, i we think we should do studio like a studio two live i mean from
1: brazil yeah there's great branding there yeah studio two from sao paulo hey i think that is a nice ring to it it is interesting i just say quickly real briefly You know, the NFL is by far Mm -hmm. the most popular sport Mm -hmm. in this country.
0: And now we could take it global.
1: And they've been trying to take it global for a Mm -hmm. long time. They've got games in England, Germany, Germany, Mexico. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: they've been so successful in this country, but actually not that successful at exporting the game abroad when you think about it in comparison to baseball hockey basketball all those leagues have players mm-hmm. from around, the, around world, the world and they have audiences around the world and there are domestic mm-hmm. leagues in those sports mm-hmm. all around mm-hmm. the world the nfl has tried so hard for many years to get the rest of the world to care about this sport and now they're using the eagles to try to do that again hey. but but they've had limited success so this is part of that story
0: and we'll see how many eagles fans end up down in you know Brazil checking it South out Paulo. we have we have months to get it together does that y'all. line up
1: with carnival i don't think it does no that's think, too bad yeah but, but hey september in brazil september in brazil Let's sounds make a it happen.
0: road trip putting it out there for all those who care to listen <laughs> so moving on nasa announced a big discovery last week it's a planet called toi 715b mm. Now, that name does not sound very catchy or sexy at all, but what if I call it a super earth? Do I have your attention now?
1: You do. Mm -hmm. This super earth, Cherry, is 137 light years away, which is apparently pretty close by the standards of astronomy. And this super earth lies in a habitable zone, which means it's the right distance from its home star to potentially harbor life. Now, to help us make sense of TOI-715B, we've brought in our favorite astronomer, Eric Jensen, from Swarthmore College. Eric, welcome back to Studio 2.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here talking to you about this.
0: Yeah, Eric. So what does the term Super Earth mean and, and why is this new discovery such a big deal?
2: Yeah, so when we discover planets around other stars, um it helps to have some way to kind of put them in some context, you know, if we said oh this is this many, you know, millions of kilograms or something that doesn't mean much, so we compare them to planets in our own solar system. So in our solar system we have the four small planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars, and then we have some bigger planets in the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And so we tend to talk about things sort of in those terms like oh this planet is like earth or this planet is like jupiter but one of the things we found we have a in our solar system we have a gap between earth which is the biggest of the inner planets and neptune which is about four times as big and you know so some of those outer planets and when we looked at other stars we discovered oh there's some other things that don't quite look like our solar system in particular it's pretty common to find planets that are maybe one and a half or two or two and a half times the radius of the earth and so those are typically referred to as as super earths so they're they're probably rocky planets like the earth but they're just bigger okay um
1: and this super and the, earth is, even, is not alone out there right there are
2: other super earths right there are many many other super earths right and so we've now astronomers have now discovered getting close to 6,000 planets Mm. around other stars, maybe 5,700, 5,800. It changes every day, so I never have the exact (laughs) number at my fingertips. Um, And so you could ask a question, it's like, well, what's interesting about this one? And as you noted, it happens to sit the right distance from its star so that it could potentially have liquid water on the surface. Mm. So it's um, so that's what people mean when they refer to the habitable zone is that one of the things that all life on earth depends on is water. And so we use that as sort of a, a yardstick to say, okay, if you're the right temperature for that, then maybe conditions could be right for life.
0: So, and let's talk about this because that's what makes this this super earth so cool that it could possibly support life what are some of the elements that are needed besides water in order to make life sustainable on a
2: planet yeah so we so one of the challenges is we know about life on earth and that's the one planet in the universe right now where we know life exists as of now we even in our own solar system we don't have evidence of life elsewhere so we're trying to extrapolate from this one sample And so people think a lot about well, what are the conditions for life? We think probably, uh, you know, a reasonable temperature that doesn't change too much, probably an atmosphere, probably the presence of water. Um, All life on Earth is based on carbon chemistry. We don't know if that's true elsewhere for sure, but, you know, as a first thing to look for, that would be a reasonable thing. And so, you know, the, the, we, we extrapolate from the conditions that are here on Earth and then try to look for those elsewhere as a first step. Not that, that all life has to be that way, but that's a that's a place to start.
1: We're in the looking phase now. We know this super Earth is out there. We know it's kind of in this habitable zone. What are the next steps? And by the way, how does this new James Webb Space Telescope potentially play into those next steps?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's exactly... Where why this is an exciting time right now? So this planet was discovered by a very small NASA mission called TESS, and its only job is to look at the whole sky and to try to find planets. Um, but it's not very; it's very capable of finding planets, but it can't reveal a lot of detailed information about certain properties of the planets, in particular about the atmosphere. And that's where the James Webb Space Telescope comes in, and this will be a promising target for Webb to look at, Um, and there's a potential with the Webb telescope, and this has happened already for some other planets, to be able to look at those planets as they pass in front of the star, and by looking at how the light is changed from the star when it passes by the planet, there's the potential to detect whether or not the planet has an atmosphere Mm. and possibly what some of the things in that atmosphere is. So for example, so if it had a relatively clear atmosphere, we could be able to say, you know, is there water vapor in that atmosphere? Is there carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And so that's, what's really exciting about Webb telescope right now is being able to look at these very distant planets and measure something about hmm. um, about their atmospheres.
1: Interesting. Well, we often say after a story, "We'll see," and in this case, literally, we, we will see. see. Yes, <laughs> that is Eric Jensen, yes. professor of astronomy right. at Swarthmore
0: College. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for being with us on Studio Two.
2: You're welcome. Always great to talk to you. And
0: coming up, Vision Apple's Vision Pro. Let me get that right. Apple's Vision Pro. Will this finally be the product that convinces us to embrace virtual reality? Email us, studio2 at whry.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
3: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
0: NPR. This is Studio 2. Welcome back. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. If you want to
1: look into the future and you have $3,500 to Mm -hmm. spare, you can strap on Apple's new Vision Pro. This virtual reality slash augmented reality headset is the tech giant's first major new product in nearly a decade, according to The Washington Post. And this is a big bet on the idea that someday
0: we are all going to want to wear computers on our face. And Apple is hardly the first to make this bet. Google Glass, remember that? It came out over 10 years ago, but it flopped. Meta has its Quest line of headsets, but so far these... Goggle-like devices haven't become mainstream, appealing mostly to gamers and tech enthusiasts. Will Apple break through? And if they do, what does that mean for our society? To answer those
1: questions and much more, we have Neeli Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. Welcome to Studio 2. Thanks for having me. By the way, folks, if you want to chime in, you can. Does the thought of a vr future excite you horrify you what do you want to know about vision pro have you used vr headsets give us a call yeah. 888-477-9499 you can also email studio2 at
0: whyy.org so uh i want to start our conversation by playing this clip this is a tim cook introducing the vision pro the apple vision Pro. Roll right ahead
2: Vision Pro is a new kind of computer that augments reality by seamlessly blending the real world with the digital world. It's the first Apple product you look through and not at. You can see, hear, and interact with digital content just like it's in your physical space. Your surroundings become an infinite canvas. So
0: Neil, I wanna kick this discussion off you put the vision pro on we have not i want you to use your descriptive words for our radio listeners and describe what you see once you put the headset on
4: first of all can i say tim cook's voice is so convincing that man could describe a blueberry muffin <laughs> like a like door-to-door yeah. salesman yeah it is it is remarkable so if your listeners are familiar with any of your headsets before you know, you put them on your face, you look at screens inside and when you turn your head, the screens move around and it's like you're in a different place. And Meta and other companies have been building these for a long time. The big technology jump in the Vision Pro, well, there's actually two of them, but the big one, the one that you are immediately aware of <clears throat> is that it has cameras on the front that mm. pass through a feed of the world around you to really, really high resolution screens on the inside. So when you put it on, you don't see a virtual reality. You're not in a fake living room or something like you are in the Quest. You're just back where you were and you're looking at camera feeds of the world around you. And it really does look it, in it immediately as though you're just right back where you started. You, you are looking right through the thing. And then the second big jump is most of these headsets have had about the computing power of like a cheap Android phone on your face. And they're pretty good at games. They're pretty good at some of that stuff. Apple has put a lot of computer in it. They've got an M2 chip in there, which is the same one they put in like the MacBook Air. Mm. Uh, It's the same chip they put in the iPad. So you have a full-on laptop level of amount of computing power on you. So you can just run web browsers. You can run games. You can run apps. And that is a big leap. That's why it costs $3,500. You've got a a full-on laptop level of computing power, and then you've got these really, really high-resolution screens and this camera pass-through system. So you put it on, and you are just looking out at the world around you. And then you've got a laptop to use in there. And then you can actually connect an actual laptop to it, which we can talk about, but that's the big jump Mm. from a traditional VR headset, which is after about a decade of those, we kind of understand them to be gaming devices. Right, Mm -hmm. Right. This is a computer.
1: Yeah, I want to actually read in a comment here from Anne-Marie, who says, during the pandemic, I worked out every day using the Supernatural app on Oculus. I realized it was a good workout when my heart rate monitor thought mm. I was jogging. Yeah. It's my middle-aged nightclub fix. Love that comment. I like that comment from Anne-Marie. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, Eli, they, they were this was an, a niche market. Gamers, people, maybe tech enthusiasts but not really something that you could integrate into your everyday life. So, well, this... so
4: Supernatural is a really interesting. Yeah, talk about concept. that.
1: Supernatural is a fitness app.
4: It's a it's a game. Uh, you basically swing bats at targets to fly at you. That was a uh, that is the hit game on the Quest. It's the killer app. And audience members like the ones who wrote into you supernatural attracted 50 an audience of 50 50 men and women and 60 percent of those people were over the age of 40 so that was the app that was making vr more mainstream
2: it Hmm. wasn't
4: just gamers it wasn't just tech nerds it was oh there's a thing to do in here that is fun and that helps me get more healthy and it was expanding the market and actually apple went to try to buy supernatural and Meta decided to buy it first, wow. hmm. uh, because they knew it was the it was the app that was driving Quest sales without you know in the mainstream audience. What's really interesting is if you look broadly at the Quest. It's a lot of moving around. That's what people do in the quest. There's another game called Beat Saber where you should just go watch videos of Beat Saber. It's hard to describe, but it is really fun. You swing, you are basically dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of other games where you move around in the quest. The difference with the Vision Pro, and I know there's lots of videos of people walking around, the Vision Pro is not a fitness device. It is not really a
1: movement device. It's a look at a lot of screens around you kind of device. And well, that's what I wanted to ask about, right? Because... From a marketing potential perspective, what does that potentially position Apple to do? Because I understand there's always going to be a market for people who who like games and maybe even expanded beyond that horizon somewhat um, in the way that you described. But when we talk about Apple products, iPhone, mm. uh, laptop, iPad, even Apple Watch, these things are integrated into your everyday life. You work on them. You live with them. Does Apple really think that is a, a one of the possible futures of Vision Pro.
4: It depends on what Vision Pro you're talking about. There's the Vision Pro that is shipping today, which is a $3,500 VR headset that can do pass through that makes it appear as though you're back in the real world, but you're still in a VR headset. And then there's the product that not just Apple, but that everybody wants which is a pair of glasses that overlays information onto the world around you. That's called augmented reality. Mm-hmm. And the simplest way to understand that, I will pay, I will I will mortgage my family's future for this product when it exists. If there was a pair of glasses that just told me people's names, I'm horrible <laughs> at names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm with if you. I could just look at someone and it could say, you met this person two weeks ago, this is their name. You, I would be the most powerful politician in America. Like I, I know it mm-hmm. in my heart that I could, if I could just remember people's names, I'd be more successful. I want that product. There's a lot of technology you have to build to get to that product. You have to build a new display technology. You have to figure out how to put the batteries somewhere. You have to build a worldwide facial recognition date. There's a lot of problems between here and that product, right? but that's the dream. What we have now is the ability to make VR headsets. Products that are just look like glasses and overlay information on the world around you. They don't look very good. They're heavy, they're bulky. They're not ready yet. So what Apple has built is the first step towards a product ah. like that, and, and so that is that. And there's a real big gap between what you can build today and what everybody actually wants.
0: So in a way, this is sort of like the test case to see what what people can do with what we have. And and I want you to sort of expand on your discussion of augmented reality a little bit because this is uh, what exactly is it, and and make that. Um, distinct from virtual reality, what we typically have seen in gaming, and um, and, and what Anne Marie was talking about earlier with the with the dancing. Yeah,
4: I, the easiest way to understand it is that virtual reality takes you someplace else.
0: Mm-hmm. You
4: are on a beach. You're on a mountain. You you are some. It looks like you're in some other environment when you put the headset on, and you can do stuff in that environment. And then you take the headset off, and you're right back where you were that's very compelling for a number of things particularly video games that's a very compelling idea meta has a big idea called the metaverse where people will gather in virtual reality environments and hang out together that is they're trudging along with it but that that's their big idea right is that we will gather together and and form connections in virtual reality the same way we form connections on the internet that's virtual reality. augmented reality is applying digital information to the world around you. and there's a million examples of this in sci-fi and popular culture. it is much more of a mainstream idea than you think. right? this idea that you're mm-hmm. going to put on glasses and you're going to look at your fridge and the fridge is just going to have a label on it that says you're out of milk or you're going to look at someone and it's going to tell you their name or you're going <clears> to <throat> you're going to look at at your car and it's going to say you know a label is going to appear that says you're almost out of gas or whatever like get your oil the oil idea changed. yeah yeah right the, the idea that there's all of this information in the world around you and right now you you need to look at your phone to get it mm. but actually it'd be really powerful if you were it was just it was just overlaid on what your eyes could see right you're augmenting your your vision you're augmenting your eyes that's really hard like it is the dream if you look at most sci-fi Almost all of it has some version of augmented reality in it because it is the most sci-fi thing you can think yeah. of. The Terminator movie from 1984, the Terminator sees an augmented reality. Like almost at every level, the idea that, oh man, I wish I just could have more information. Yeah. Right. I wish I could just see what's mm-hmm. right in front of me is very powerful to people. And so we're starting to be able to build it in in really small ways.
0: Yeah. And our Facebook, uh, one of our Commenter said, David said, I think VR is the future, like in the Star Trek series. I'll wait until the price is lower. And my quick follow up for you was sort of that's the dream, the full augmented reality where you're seeing everything around you, but then the technology is sort of layered on top of that in front of you. So what can you do with the current device that we have with the Vision Pro? What are some of the useful the ways you can actually use it for work or to live life?
4: So what's fascinating about the Vision Pro is it doesn't have a lot of augmented reality in it. It is a middle point on this journey. Mm. So augmented reality, right? You look at the fridge, it says you're out of milk, or you look at the car and it says you need an oil change. You need to get some information back from the world and you need to recognize those objects. You need to put the label on the objects. All of that's really hard, especially to do in real time as you're just looking at stuff. No, none of that's fast, right? So what the Vision Pro, is, what the Vision Pro does is it Kind of accomplishes a middle state. You're in the world, you're around, and then you can put windows up wherever you want. And the, the magic part is that they stay there. So you can put a window, you can open a web browser window and float it in the kitchen with a recipe on it. And you can just leave and you can go to a different room of your house mm. and you can open a video player window to watch TV in the living room. And you can go back to the kitchen and your web browser window will just be there. Wow. wow. And until you experience it, it it i'm describing it it's like yeah you can just put some windows everywhere but th- it's magic because you're in it and all of these like internet portals are just like floating around your house as though they're real
1: yeah
4: oh, okay. right you're just experiencing them and that that's the big step that's the thing people are reacting to most of all from vision pro right now is having all of these windows appear in space and, you know at apple levels of quality so they're very high resolution they they're not like jittery they're just there and you experience that the first time, you're like, oh, I, I can see where this will go.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. We're talking with Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. We're talking about uh, this Apple Vision Pro. It's 3500 bucks. Mm-hmm. and our mm-hmm. last commenter did reference the price. Um, and I want to talk about that in a second, but first give the email address one more time, studio2 at WHYY.org. Okay, so you've laid out that we have this very expensive thing that really isn't lining up with the vision of where we actually want this thing to go eventually or where the tech folks want this to go eventually. So why is Apple doing this then? Like, like the, What's the business strategy here? Because they've already got the phones. They've already got the laptops. They've already got uh, the iPads. They've got the watches. Um, like, like, What competitive edge are they actually seeking here in the market compared to whatever Meta's doing, whatever uh, Google might do?
4: That is a really good question. I think a lot of people who have followed Apple for a long time are wondering what led to this device being released as it is now, because the device we have today is not the dream. It's not the pair of glasses that's seamless. It is a $3,500 headset that weighs about (laughs) 1.3 pounds you have to put on your head. (laughs) And it has an external battery pack that you have to carry around. And it messes up your hair. And that's like 200 bucks, the battery pack. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Every time you use this computer, it messes up your hair, which I put in my review a bunch of times. That's a lot of – and you're alone in there. And I want to point out that is the biggest trade-off of all. This is resolutely a single-player experience. Mm. I'm looking at all these windows around my house, but my wife isn't. My kid isn't. It's really hard to share what you're looking at. Like you can – You can sort of like airplay a view to a a computer or something, but then someone has to look at a laptop to look at what you're just looking at. Two people and two headsets can't look at the same thing at the same time, Mm -hmm. which seems like a a big miss. It's pretty lonely. Like, I don't want to overstate it. I have lots of readers who said, well, look, I work alone anyway. Like, I might as well be wearing a headset. Like, it'll work for some people and it won't work whenever you have other people around you. And I, I want to say that's a big trade-off. It's not a little trade-off. It's a, like almost spiritual trade-off you're to make with this device. Yeah, you've sucked the social experience out of this. Mm-hmm. Right, which is very different than what Meta is doing. Yeah. right. You talk about wanting a VR headset. The Meta VR headset is 500 bucks. It has a whole bunch of games. It's not nearly as nice or as cool as the Apple one, but it's $500. It has a lot of games. And inside of it is a bunch of social experiences that Meta wants you mm-hmm. to have. Apple hasn't really built any of that stuff. yet. They, I'm sure they will, but they haven't done it yet. So there's a big gap between the thing you can buy today and the thing that everybody's dreaming about and i think the reason you buy it i think the reason apple put it out today i think the reason people are buying it today is because the software feels ready like it's ready Mm -hmm. to start building apps and experiences inside of this software they have the platforms they the vision pro runs a version of ipad os that has been built for these experiences they're they're ready they're ready for people to start building and i I can only assume the hope is that they will rapidly improve the actual product so that by the time people, it's mainstream, by the time they are selling a $1,000 one that is light and self-contained, and doesn't have a silly battery, that there will be a universe of fully thought out software experiences and everyone will have learned a lot about where these things are appropriate and where they're not. Hmm. And that is basically the path they followed with the Apple Watch. Yeah. Uh, they cut it out, they didn't quite know what it was for, and by the time everyone was ready to buy them and they were cheap the thing was complete. And that took you know three or four years.
0: Yeah. And that, that's what I was going to ask you. Can we walk through a timeline? Because um, what do we learn from Apple products? Because I remember there was a time when I, I thought when they had this iPad that came out and I was like, why in the world would I need an iPad? <laughs> and yet the Apple Watch on right now, don't you? I, I don't. This is not an Apple oh, Watch. But my bad. Apple Watch like. <laughs> um, but but I, I remember when I got an <laughs> iPad and I was like, why do I need this iPad? And yet now because of speaking engagements all those things i can't imagine doing these things without an ipad so what is the sort of what are the steps to sort of taking this vision pro from where it is now with not a lot of software to where like someone like me would be convinced to say hey you know what i don't know what i ever did without this thing strap it on
4: yeah (laughs) uh yeah first people have to use them i think the the thing that I remind everybody of all the time is once people start buying these products, all bets are off. Mm. No one knows what's going to happen. A really silly example, you have to wear this thing on your face. And so it comes with all these bits and bobs of light seals and different cushions to get them to fit right. And there's a group of people on Reddit who are like, just throw all that stuff away. Mm. Just like no cushion, no seal. Just mount the thing as close to your eyes as you just smash it up there <laughs> and it, it will look... <laughs> And the field of view, which is what they call how wide you can see, will be enormous. There's no way any Apple designers thought, okay, people are just going to take off all the soft materials and smash the thing against their faces. Right. And you can see, like, once real people get the devices, they start making different choices. They They start start creating the
1: path, in a sense, for Apple. Exactly. Yeah.
4: Exactly. Well, And for everybody, for every technology product.
1: The story of all these products is that the
4: people actually determine their futures. And I think that's the big step that's happening now.
1: That's a powerful message to end on. Thank you so much, Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. Uh, Really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up, we get to talk to the Kelsey Brothers of the Ballet World. Our title. Our title, not theirs. Ashton and Jake Roxander coming up. Stick with us.
4: The borderline of doom I'm
0: facing. The edge of reality. Welcome back on into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt.
1: And as Eminem once said, (laughs) let's snap back to reality. Mm -hmm. One of the great parts of this job is we get to talk to people who have incredible talent, mind-blowing athleticism and artistry. And for our next guest, it runs in the family. Brothers Ashton and Jake Roxander are both professional ballet dancers and they come from a storied dance family. Their dad and grandfather... Were well known ballet dancers.
0: Ashton Roxander is a principal dancer at Philadelphia Ballet. His brother Jake was also with Philadelphia Ballet, but he's now a rising star in the Corps de Ballet at the American Ballet Theater. The New York Times highlighted him as a breakout star last year. So, like the Kelsey brothers or the Williams sisters, we were curious about what it takes to compete at an elite level alongside your sibling. They joined us yesterday, Ashton was in the studio, and Jake joined us remotely from New York. I am
1: curious about your guys' upbringing. So you're from Medford, Oregon, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And your parents... Or in the ballet business. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because in some ways you guys came up at at the center of the ballet world because of your parents. Mm. But then you're also in Medford, Oregon, which is, you know, pretty 9%. far away from New York yeah. City <laughs> yeah. and Paris. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I'm curious, like, like, I'll start with you, Jake. Do you see yourself more like as a, a ballet insider or, or outsider? Like, how do you view that tension? I think most of the time I feel a little
3: bit like an outsider, you know? this kid from kind of the the middle of nowhere, from from Medford, which is a beautiful place, and it was a great place to grow up, and now I'm in, you know, the Big Apple. You know, I, I'm not quite a fish out of water, but I, I think I usually kind of feel a little bit like an outsider, and it's so, it's so crazy that we've kind of come so far, not just physically, but just with our careers and such, and uh, that's something to be super grateful for as well.
0: And can we talk about your dad a little bit? Because your dad was very instrumental in some of your training, getting up in the mornings, Mm -hmm. working with you, (laughs) getting you ready. I mean, what was it like sort of being trained by your father, who was a dancer in the Canadian ballet?
5: Yeah, National Ballet of Canada. Yeah. It was hard. It was hard because it's, you know, the same voice all the time. Can be difficult, but I never felt like, you know, you hear that a lot. It's like uh, um, working with your parents or training with your parents can kind of damage your relationship with your parents. But I I think Jake and I never felt that way. I think it did the opposite. I think it just brought us closer and closer together. Yeah. Um, right. But, you know, the, the the expectation of the amount of work this was going to take to get to this place, to dance in a world-class ballet company, a, preferably a union ballet company, mm-hmm. so that you'll be somewhat protected as an artist, um, those expectations were high. It was a demanding, rigorous process. And I think that even my dad couldn't have imagined that we would, you know, I would be a principal dancer and at 25 and Jake would be you know, doing all these amazing things in New York and, you know, the New York Times and, you Mm -hmm. know, all these, all these great things, you know, but I think it, it came from that drive at home.
0: And so I wanted to ask this question. Um, The New York Times wrote about Jake, about his performance as Puck and the Dream. They said, Roxander's shot from a bow leaps, had Mm arrow-like definition. His turns were cyclonic yet controlled they also said but what's thrilling about roxander is technique yoke to eagerness the guy goes for it um Mm -hmm. my question is sort of tied to this this power Mm -hmm. that is required jake the power that must be balanced with the effortlessness that it takes to make it look easy i mean i really think it's
3: time training and dedication ultimately i mean it's it's the best dancers in the world did their tondus at bar today you know the same thing that you know me and ashton learned how to do when we were three so it's really a never-ending journey but ultimately it's just trying to be disciplined you know even when you don't want to be in class and work your butt off and Jump and your body doesn't feel great. You're disciplined enough to really take those steps because you know it's worth it for the future. Mm -hmm. Kind of delayed gratification. But of course, this is an extremely hard career. Like Mm -hmm. like you said, you know, how do you do these big jumps and these these very physical things and make them look effortless? That's one of the hardest things about ballet. You know, no one tells a basketball player that you know when you hit that slam dunk, (laughs) be cool. To the hoop, I didn't like how you put the ball into the hoop. Also, your facial expression was not pleasant for me, and you know, so it's 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 very hard. It's not necessarily even the situation of you know you cross the finish line first, you win. Ballet is subjective, and it's an art form.
0: And Ashton to you, and and I'm gonna add the different layer of because you were acting mm-hmm. as well, yeah, as Jake just said. So Ashton, you you have to have the precision, effortlessness, power, and be an actor on top of it
5: right that's kind of my mentality when I go on stage is usually don't think too much about the physical technique and like physically accomplishing the steps you know you really just kind of want to tell the story and embody the character and like Jake is saying that discipline that you apply on a daily basis and you know when you get on stage and I'm sure Jake will agree it's that you can kind of just Let go of the steering wheel and let your muscle memory kind of uh, take over. That doesn't mean don't point your feet and don't think about (laughs) it. But, you know, the priorities when you get to the stage, you know, hopefully those weeks and weeks and months of rehearsal sometimes, you know, have done their job. And you can kind of just sit back and say, okay, I'm I'm capable. You know, my body can do this. So now I just add a little extra juice, Mm, you know. That
1: does actually remind me of something that... um uh, a football player we interviewed, Malcolm Jenkins, told us, because mm-hmm. I asked him about, like, how do you overcome the fear of doing something you know is going to hurt your body? Right. And he's like, but you're not thinking in that moment because your preparation has been so intense. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I should ask about the pain the pain threshold and aspect for you, Ashton. I mean, is this... Wh- what do you feel like after a performance physically? Mm. you looked
2: uncomfortable when I asked you that yeah I just thought about it um
5: I I feel like you have those (laughs) that two-hour window of just like elation Mm -hmm. when you're like wow what look what I just did you know Mm -hmm. it's it's over you have lost your body weight and sweat and then two and a half hours rolls around and you're like oh man what did I just do you know Mm -hmm. you have the same thought but in reverse you kind of like feel what's the, the car accident you've been in oh my um, gosh so after <laughs>
1: sort of the, the ego uh, boost of the applause and the accomplishment wears yeah, off yeah
5: the adrenaline everything and, and then it's and then it's bones, pain it sets in it's kind of hopefully it's not too much pain pain it's mm-hmm. it's more just like extreme fatigue Got it. you know because when Breath. you're out there you don't I, I don't feel my legs I don't feel my feet I don't feel you know mm. anything I'm just I am pure adrenaline like just getting getting it done you know, so when you can kind of calm down, and you know, you've had your glass of wine, and you've had your dinner, and you can kind of just be like, "It's over now." Now <laughs> I can now I can be one with my physical self again. Um, that can be a rude awakening, but again, it's it's you know so worth it.
0: Huh. I want to ask about being male dancers mm. because the role in the ballet seems to be very different, and Ashton. I I think I've read or saw somewhere that you said it was was very challenging being Mm -hmm. a male dancer. I mean, you have to lift people. It's a lot going on. Can you talk about some of the differences between the male dancers and the female dancers and what some of the challenges are um, being one of a few?
5: Yeah. I think men and women, you know, we have our um, own different challenges. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's harder to be a, a male dancer than a female dancer. By any means I probably think the the reverse. The opposite, but yeah. you know, I do think that, that male dancers we ask our bodies to do things that are wildly unnatural. And I think that as we get better and better and better, it's becoming more and more gymnastic. You know, the yeah. things that are being asked of of us. You know, boys are only jumping higher. They're only turning more. The lifts are only getting harder. And I think Jake will agree with me here, too, is uh, being a being a smaller Mm. (laughs) male dancer, sometimes you have a foot in both worlds. At least I do as a as a principal. Um, Right. You know, it's like you you have to do the same exact lifts that, you know, guys that are outweigh you by 50 pounds and, you know, are four inches taller than you. And, you know, and then you do also the shorter boy rolls that just you just pound into the floor you jump and jump and jump and turn because you're Can I ask virtuoso you why that
1: is though like is it choreographers is it audiences like who is demanding more. sort of more of an emphasis on these athletic feats these these marvelous physically demanding feats
5: when when you do something in front of the audience and the audience gets excited it's contagious yeah and gasp. Yeah, yeah ballet companies know You know, it's like, oh, that was good.
1: I mean, you're in the audience engagement business. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. But that is it seems like audiences are responding to, boy, a lot of air on that. Yeah. A lot of spins on that. A lot of power on that.
5: And I would argue that's one of the reasons I started dancing, Hmm. you know, was because that was my favorite part. Watching these boys throw themselves around and just go wild. It was so exciting.
0: And and Jake, I want you to come into the conversation because I know I've seen 11 second clips (laughs) you guys dancing on tiktok right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how does social media sort of shift things jake when you you can take an 11 second clip and blow that up and it go viral but people don't see the gory story that goes into creating that 11 (laughs) seconds
3: (laughs) yeah it's funny it's really funny that you mentioned this because me and ashton were literally talking about this uh last night um we were talking about how social media and just just the how the world is changing but how social media in particular has affected the dance world so much and how you know we're not really sure if it has affected the dance world in a positive way because it's 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 a lot of information especially for a young kid it's a lot of seeing people that seem perfect you know every every person is going to post i'm assuming their best pirouette their best double tour Mm -hmm. their best whatever lift that's the one they're going to post they're not going to post the six takes before that really good one that they hit um, of them falling on the floor or messing up or getting upset. And I, I, I think it, it can it can be a lot for kind of a kid to process. And it's it, it, it some sometimes I think can warp their image. Of course, like anything, there's there's been a lot of positive aspects of social media, you know, dancers gaining a following it's there's definitely pros and cons to it all. Uh, I don't that's think Ashton or I are <laughs> huge <laughs> social media guys. We definitely don't have the biggest followings, but you know at the same time I don't I don't think that's inter- terribly important to us. You know, I think
5: in the in like Jake is saying the information age where you you can all this stuff is just at your fingertips. You know, if you're looking, you can you can find it. Um so I guess I've kind of always been of the mind that is a little bit more I simplify my work Mm. I don't get too swept up in my own self promotion and I think something that is important in our art form in the live performing arts is that you come see me live Mm. but you know on the flip side of that you know there's kids like Jake and I who relied solely on videos of you know, like Jake is saying, like videos of Angel Korea and you know Barishnikov, and you know that was our inspiration. That was our go-go juice because know? they weren't go performing go. in Medford, yeah. Oregon. No, no and one that's was. How you <laughs> it
0: with the, of course, with the yeah. 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 yeah, yeah.
5: I didn't see my first full-length ballet until I was uh, sixteen. Wow. Really? Yeah, in Boston. Wow. Yeah,
0: I think I was about the same. Yeah. Wow.
1: Really? Yeah. And huh.
0: now this is the career.
1: Yeah, and now I'm here. Okay, so kids, unplug. Mm-hmm. Go, to, go to the American <laughs> Ballet Theater, Philadelphia <laughs> the Ballet. Philadelphia Ballet uh, yeah. Jake, Ashton, thank you both for being here. I have a feeling we're going to look back on this interview mm-hmm. five, ten years and be like, that's pretty cool we got to talk to the two of them at the, the same time. The Roxander brothers. I, I love it. <laughs> I just got a feeling. Uh, thanks to you both.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having
0: us. And that was Ashton Roxander, principal dancer for the Philadelphia Ballet. He will be performing in Giselle starting February 29th through March 10th. Jake Roxander is in American Ballet Theater, Corps de Ballet. He will be performing in Swan Lake at the Kennedy Center February 21st through February 25th. They are very busy.
1: Let me run this by you real quick. Mm-hmm. Today we went from stars uh-huh. to AR. A R T. You like that thread right there?
0: That was good. Just in a
1: day's work here at Studio (laughs) 2. That is it for our show today. Subscribe to Studio 2 wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review. We want your feedback. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Diana Martinez is our engineer from Studio
0: 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us. Little Spark.